Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Kelly Henderson, and you are listening to the Velvet's Edge podcast. So let's talk about love. It's one of my favorite topics, as you probably can guess, by the new direction of Act Casual, revolving mostly around sex and dating these days. However, as I have mentioned before on this podcast, relationships have not always been just easy peasy for me. And if you chose this podcast to listen to, I would imagine that maybe they haven't always been all romance and fairy tales for you either. Although I actually think that is probably more of the norm than the romantic comedy version of love, for some of us, the dynamics of our adult relationships can actually be programmed within us from very early on. If you find yourself unsatisfied in your relationship, feeling like you're chasing or being chased, not feeling like yourself, feeling like you pick the same types of guys and girls over and over again, even feeling like you've lost yourself or your life is unmanageable, you are not the only one. On this week's episode, I talk to licensed therapist Jody White, who specializes in attachment trauma and love addiction, both dynamics that are created in our childhoods and then repeated in our adult relationships. Jody shares from both her expert position as well as from her experience of dealing with her own love addiction. I also talk through some of my trauma dynamics that I have personally struggled with within relationships which feels extremely vulnerable, but if there is even one person that this podcast can help, I will keep talking. If you are struggling with any of these attachment styles or addictions, moving out of it can sometimes feel honestly like you're dying. So please know that you are not alone and there's so much help and so much hope out there. Here's our conversation. So I feel like this topic can get a little heavy and it's a little scary. Like I was just explaining to you when I first heard these words, they were very scary to me. So I just want to make sure that our overall message here is you can heal. There is hope. There is a solution for all of this. But first, I think you do have to understand and accept the problem, right? So by definition, can you kind of just put into words what is love addiction? Yes. Um, And so... Yes, it's a when you <laughs> there are so many things I want to say about the term <laughs> love addiction because it's such a it's an it's an unfortunately it's an unfortunate name for something that is yeah. actually because it does not describe what this is. And I should also say I call love addiction a disorder. It is not technically a disorder. Okay. You cannot be diagnosed with love addiction. It's not in the DSM, you know, it's there's no criteria um, a psychiatrist is going to say, here's, here's your, here's your diagnosis for love addiction. It is, um, but I call it a disorder because when I first learned about my love addiction, it helped give weight to this thing that I had been dealing with for 30 years. You yeah. know, it made it because it was, whoa, um, because it is, a, a set of disordered behaviors really. Yes. So, but, but to, to go back to what love addiction is, it's like, I always start with what love addiction isn't. Okay. <laughs> it's, it is not 
an addiction to love. It's not an addiction to being in love. It actually has really nothing to do with healthy adult love mm. as, as we would know it or should know it as grownups, right? Um, if you break it down into love, two words, love and addiction. So love, it's the love that we, it was our first love. It's, it's that attachment love that we experience with our primary caregiver when we are very, 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 very young. I mean, this is pre-verbal. You're so tiny. So that first love, that first attachment connection that you have. And so if there is an interruption in that attachment, which my theory on this is that there often is, um, and we'll talk about that in a, in a minute, but you know, you have that interruption in attachment. And so as you develop as a child, if you don't have consistent attachment with your primary caregiver, which is usually a parent, but not always, um, you constantly are seeking it, you know, because mm -hmm. even though you're little, you know what that is, is survival. You know, you need to be loved and cared for in order to survival. That's how we're wired, right? And so, um, but the thing is, we have parents often who are not available for whatever reason, because we live in a society where parents are stressed. A lot, all of us are stressed most of the time. But, you know, you think about parents and they're having to work. Right. Um, maybe both parents work. Or sometimes you've got a single parent who's working two jobs and they're just not able to be as physically or emotionally available for the child as they would like to be. Um, but then you throw in um, either there could be mental health issues um, with the parent or addiction issues. Mm. Um, and, you know, there's also, they have their own wounding. You know, they've got their own wounding that hasn't been dealt with, just like their parents had their own wounding <laughs> that hasn't right. been dealt with. And so it's handed down in that way, too. So the, the point of this is that it's very common to experience some sort of interruption in the attachment um, when we are children. So, um, yeah, so that's what we're talking about when we're talking about love. It's like the first love that we have yeah. that we experience. And so, and that's really in the form of what we call unconditional positive regard. So it's knowing that you are loved no matter what you're lovable, you're worthy. And, um, no matter what you do, you're messy, you're imperfect, you're your spontaneous, authentic self when you're a kid. And you can count on that unconditional positive regard. You know, it's okay to be you. Mm -hmm. um, but if you if there's an interruption around attachment, if the parent isn't consistently available, that unconditional positive regard might either be inconsistent or sometimes we don't get it at all, right? Um, depending on what our childhood is like. So basically um, what happens is we grow up looking for it. <laughs> we grow up looking for it in a partner or even in a friendship. You know, this doesn't just apply to romantic relationships. Um, but in it, it starts early, you know, it can start in grade school, um, you know, where we start seeking attachment connection with other people. Um, and, and we're wired to attach. That's, that's a, not an unhealthy thing. It's when we start early with putting people on a pedestal or making them more valuable than we are or looking to them to validate us, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so that's where we're seeking that unconditional positive regard from someone else so that we can feel lovable and worthy versus knowing that we're lovable and worthy. So, so. I, I like that definition about seeking the unconditional positive regard because, you know, addictions, it feels like such a dirty word sometimes. Like mm -hmm. it's like yeah. such a hard word to swallow, specifically, I think, around love because... I know for me, the first time I heard this word and this, this, these kind of definitions, it made me just feel insane because mm -hmm. I was like, how do you have an addiction to love? And as you said, like, are, are you just going to seek it out from anywhere? Is it the actual addiction to love? But really what love addiction is, is an addiction to the process of that, right? Yes, exactly. It's a process addiction. And so it's the process of getting, so let me like, okay, for example, I read something on Instagram the other day. <laughs> that was um, 
I started a hashtag a long time ago. It's love addiction awareness. Okay. And um, which is awesome. People are using it now, but there's still a lot of misinformation out there mm. about love addiction. And one of the posts was about that love addiction is an addiction to another human. And and based on the theory that I work with, which is PMLD's work, uh, that is not the case. It's not, you're not addicted to that person. You're addicted to the process of trying to get something from that person so that you can feel okay. Because it, but it looks like an addiction to that person from the outside. And it also feels like you're addicted to that person. Hmm. Um, But if that, the thing is, because this starts so early in childhood, it's really, it starts with a fantasy, a fantasy, you know, the, let's go back to, you know, the, the pain, because this is all childhood trauma, and we can talk more about that in a minute, too. But, you know, the trauma, it's, it's painful as a child to not be able to, to get what you need consistently or the way you need it. And so we start looking for something to soothe. And, you know, kids are good at self-soothing. Um, and so one of those ways that we can self-soothe is through fantasy. And so, especially for young girls, this can develop into a fantasy of someone who's going to rescue and, you know, for me, it was, I, I can remember being eight, around eight or nine, maybe when this started for me. And I can remember fantasizing about there was a TV star who I had a huge crush on. And in my fantasy, you know, I was married to him and living in Hollywood and all these great things. Yeah. And I mean, it was pretty, it was a daily fantasy. And I thought it was just, um, I thought that was pretty normal, you know, and it's not that it's abnormal, but what happens is that that fantasy, it wasn't so much about him, that rescuer, although that rescuer was really necessary in that fantasy. He had to be part of it. Um, but it was really how I felt about myself in that fantasy. I felt good. I felt strong and powerful mm. and important and valuable because of this rescuer was in that fantasy, even though he was peripheral in there, but he was necessary. And so what happens is over time, you know, you get into preteens adolescence and for me you know I started with relationships um, and alcohol around the same time which was 14 15 and you just take that person and plug them into the fantasy and so then it becomes oh I need to get this person to make me feel that way yeah you know, I need to get this part and so what the point with this is is that you take that person out you break up you end that relationship it's painful but then another person comes along and the addiction happens with that person too so it just you just move on from relationship to relationship and so that's why it's not it's not really about being addicted to a a human because it's not it's about being addicted to the process of trying to get something so obviously your work is a lot around this love addiction stuff um Mm -hmm. but you have a personal journey with it which you've kind of just described in this the last story you told so will you tell the listeners how you personally faced love addiction in your life and found out about it and just kind of walk us through your journey. Yeah, (laughs) it's so I'm four years into my recovery, uh, four and a half years. And sometimes, and I'm a therapist who specializes in love addiction. Um, now that I've learned about it and how amazing it is to learn about it and recover. Yeah. Um, you know, I also look at this as an epidemic, it's like an undiagnosed epidemic. There are so many of us walking around with this uh, disordered behavior and thinking it's just the way we are. We're just, this is just me. I, I guess I, nobody else deals with this. This I'm just messed up. I'm just, you know. Or how even how the world, I feel like how our society paints what love actually looks like. Do oh, you, gosh. you know what I'm, then this is a whole nother topic. But when you just said that, that's what dawned on me was like, I think a lot of people are walking around not even realizing that what we're doing is dysfunctional or not good for us or actually real love. Yeah. Well, yes, because the movies, let's just go with movies because yeah. there's also a lot more to it, but movies paint it like, you know, love is intense. Yes, and, um, the intensity. Yes. And so that's not really, that's, I mean, we can come back to that, but being feeling in love, there is a, that's a real thing. Yeah. But the intensity and the drama and the pushing and pulling, that's not healthy adult love, you know, yeah. but we think that's what we need. It passion, you know, that's passion. the word. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I started early <laughs> with dysfunctional relationships and, you know, 14, 15 was always after the bad 
the bad boy, um, the one that was hard to get, um, chasing, lots of chasing. And so usually early on, it wasn't, I wouldn't, for me, it was the chasing, then I would get into the relationship, get bored, end it. And that probably lasted into my early 20s until I had my first really co-addicted relationship where, um, and with love addiction, the symptoms, the, the three symptoms, you know, and this again is according to humility's work, but it's that we, the first one is we expect unconditional positive regard from that person, right? So we're looking to them to make us feel okay. We undervalue ourselves while we're in that relationship, meaning we neglect ourselves while we overvalue the other person. Um, mm-hmm. And that can look like putting them on a pedestal. Um, you know, we make them into someone they're not. We try to make them into the person we want them to be. And this really can become obsessive and um, takes a lot of time and focus. And so what happens with love addiction is we're typically uh, – most often the co-addicted relationship consists of the avoidant. So the love addict and the love avoidant and the love avoidant is not consistently available, um, kind of comes and goes. And the love addict is constantly kind of like leaning over trying to catch, <laughs> trying to pull the love addict into uh, the love avoidant into the relationship. And, um, it's really painful. And, uh, so that was really the first co-addicted relationship I had, but I, dropped down to, um, I think the biggest symptom I had was I started using alcohol a lot more often in that relationship to medicate. Mm-hmm. And, um, I lost about 30 pounds. I'm, wow. you know, I've got down to about 90 pounds. I'm usually about 120 and I wasn't eating right. People around me could see it and they just had no idea what was going on. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, and I just thought, well, this is just somehow normal. I don't know how, what I thought, but when that ended and I went through some major withdrawals and then I, um, what I called took a break from dating, which really was what is more often known as love anorexia, where you completely shut out any sort of intimacy or any relationships, um, and really protect yourself from that because it's so painful to go through those withdrawals after a co-addicted relationship. Um, and you don't really recover unless you are doing recovery work, you know? So I just thought, well, I just need to fix myself. I just need to get, you know, work out again and eat better and just avoid dating. And I'll just focus on myself for a little while and then got right back into another relationship like that. And that's how it can continue where if you're not doing recovery work and you're not addressing this, um, this, what's the underlying attachment trauma really you just continue to get into these relationships and looking at my history, each one was worse. Each one was more disastrous for me. And, um, the alcohol use ramped up with each one. Um, and I just somehow kept thinking I could fix it between each relationship that I was going to fix it myself or, and I would be in therapy. That's a whole nother thing (laughs) is, um, I, I went to therapists. I started therapy when I was in my twenties. Um, I'm 50, almost 51 right now, but I started in my 20s and I would talk about my relationships and the dysfunction and never was uh, attachment trauma or trauma or uh, codependence or love addiction discussed um, until probably well, 2010, I was in a really disastrous relationship. And that was when I was in graduate school to go back to be a therapist. And um, I had a therapist, a new therapist, say, you know, this sounds like this thing I just learned about. It's called love addiction. And she starts to get out this binder that she had just, she had attended a week, a workshop like a week before. So she had this big binder that she got at the workshop. And I looked at her and said, oh, yeah, no, uh, I don't know what that <laughs> You're is. Like, no, thank you. Um, <laughs> no, I'm just, I, no, you can, you can just put that. I mean, I really just completely shut her down and it was never mentioned again. I mean, I, and I don't yeah. know. Because I had read about codependence, you know, and I even had read Facing Codependence by Pia Melody in the 90s. (laughs) So, but when I heard love addiction, I said, yeah, whatever that is, I don't want anything to do with it. So, um, so yeah, I I understand the aversion to hearing that. But then um, four and a half years ago, I finally, you know, with each end of a relationship, it was just, I was 
in worse shape every time. And four and a half years ago, I just said, I've got, I can't I not do this anymore. And mm. my friend, um, Dr. Stevie Stanford, um, she and I worked together inpatient at a facility. And she said, you know, there's this therapist. She specializes in trauma. Maybe, you know, maybe uh, she could be good. And, I, and my friend Stevie and I, neither one of us really knew that I was dealing with love addiction or, and I didn't even know what love addiction was. And so when I went to see this new therapist, I mean, it was within 20 minutes. She looked at me and she said, here's what you're, here's what's going on. <laughs> and she just broke it down. And my entire 30 year history of dating. And I just was mind blown. I was just, and I felt so much relief. And at the same time, I was terrified. I know that exact feeling. You actually have a name for something. So it's relieving mm-hmm. because it all makes sense and it makes you not feel insane. But then you're like, but what next? Or what does this mean? Or am I just fucked up forever? Yes. And, and the book, she gave me a copy of facing love addiction to take home. I just devoured it because it was so validating. Mm. Um, and I think for me at that point, because like I said, here I was 46 years old at the time, just, I was so ready to stop it. I just Mm -hmm. really, really wanted to do the work. And so, you know, now had someone told me this in my twenties, or early 30s even, I might have still just said, yeah, maybe not. <laughs> maybe yeah. I don't want to do that right now. But you go on long enough, you, I think that we just get to where it's, you just see that it gets worse and worse. And that's how I look at love addiction is it, if it goes undetected and the work isn't done, we will just continue to end up in a worse, in a worse place. Yeah, I don't know if you feel like this, but um, I always laugh because people tell me, that I don't have a type. Like none of my boyfriends have looked the same, uh-huh. done the same thing. <laughs> and I'm like, and then, 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 then I have a type. Like I have a type. And when you mentioned the emotionally unavailable aspect of like the dance that you do and the relationships you get in, all of my past relationships have been that dynamic. And so although the people didn't look the same on the outside, on the Mm -hmm. inside, it was the same dynamic. And that is what sucks me in. Um, I want to talk a little bit about that dance. But I want to ask another question. When you say you amped up your drinking as a medicator, Mm -hmm. what were you medicating? I think the discomfort. um, Well, so when you're in the co-addicted relationship, so here's how I and the the cycle works, right? Like, let's just say you're cruising along and you're okay because you're not in a relationship. So you're feeling pretty good about yourself. Yeah. And then you meet someone. And as a love addict, what I would do is if I met someone who was um, uh, available and healthy, I usually felt like, oh, he's just too available, too, too much for me, right? And it just wouldn't click. But someone who, you know, I really believe this is an energetic thing too that you can pick up on. Hmm. he's there, but there's something not quite available. And all this subconscious stuff is like you, you're more drawn as a love addict to that not quite available person. Mm-hmm. Um, but initially things seem okay. You know, they're, you're dating. He's because that's what a love avoidant does. And by the way, love avoidance aren't bad people. Lots of us are actually addict avoidance and that's, I'm an addict and I can, and an avoidant. I can be, both. yeah. Um, so when we talk about love avoidance, we're not talking about, the bad guy here. Um, but the behavior is based on their own childhood wounding. So, you know, you're, you're dating, you're starting out in this relationship and then suddenly there's a tiny shift and the love avoidant will start to pull away a tiny bit. And the love addict that triggers right away our abandonment wound and our mm. fear of abandonment. And we, it triggers our anxiety. And so we'll start to over function in the relationship. Right. And then as the love avoidant senses that they'll start to pull away more. Right. And, beca- and so then we're just getting really, really getting anxious. And so um, it's, it becomes that push pull, you know, and then maybe the love addict will step back a little, then the love avoidant uh, leans in and it's just this back and forth and back and forth. But so the alcohol, when I look back, I, I was medicating the anxiety. anxiety. Yeah. 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 I I think it's so interesting to what you mentioned about like the love avoidant piece. Um, at the beginning, a lot of times aren't the more avoidant personalities, maybe even like they come on a little strong or Mm -hmm. it's like, what do they call it? Love bombing a little bit like at the beginning, isn't it? Yes. 
a, that dynamic. And then, like you said, it's like something snaps and they start to shut down. And that's mm-hmm. when all of this stuff gets activated. Yes. So if we look at, okay, so again, um, I always want to make sure I credit P Melody because this is all, yeah, you know, her work, first of all, got me in recovery and I use it in my therapy practice and my coaching practice. And it's just amazing. Um, but she has really broken it down into, so if you look at two types of childhood trauma, one is the neglect, um, and one is enmeshed. And so with enmeshment, you look at love avoidant, Typically, not always, but typically they have experienced some sort of enmeshment in childhood. And so what the enmeshment is, is that they're raised, they're put on a pedestal. Um, they're often called the hero of the family. Mm-hmm. They are, um, you know, they can do no wrong. They're the golden child. Um, and so they have this role that they play where it's kind of like they're they're given too much esteem as children. So they have what is considered you know, over-esteemed. Um, and so, but they also are needed. So as the hero in the family, there's a need, like they need to be responsible. They need to take care of people. They need to um, be there. And so they associate intimacy or close connection with um, suffocation or pressure or feeling trapped and so when you start out in a relationship, and this is, again, this is a lot of just, um, I don't want to say I'm oversimplifying it, but it, 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 I'm just breaking it down into more helpful terms. But um, so if you, the love addict and the love avoidant, th- yes, the love avoidant comes on strong because they are, first of all, probably good people, but they're, and they're available initially, but then they're also, their conditioning is to be this kind of rescuer or yeah. this. Um, look how great I am. Look, look at how much self-esteem I have. And I want to bring you in with me kind of thing, you know, but then the love addict starts to lean in and the love avoidant goes, Whoa, I feel trapped. I feel suffocated. I feel, I feel needed. And I don't like that. Even though that's their conditioning, they don't like it. And so they start to pull away. I just think the dance is so interesting. And I also Mm -hmm. think it's so interesting because so much of it from what I've read and what I've experienced in my own life is completely subconscious, right? Like we oh, do yeah. not, like I, I have been told and this, my mom used to tell me this as a child because you do get this stuff honestly. And it's been at a dynamic in my family for many, many years. But, um, my mom would say, you know, the way that my nature and your dad's nature is like, we could walk into a room of like a hundred or even a thousand people and we'd probably find each other. Like, it's like you are drawn to the person who either you think is going to rescue you or whatever our wounds might be or Mm -hmm. our trauma, you are subconsciously drawn to the person that you either think can fix that or that meets you at that same place. Right. Yeah. And so that's what's so interesting is like, like you said, you could have a person come up to you who probably, would have a completely healthy dynamic and maybe having a secure attachment and you wouldn't be attracted to them. You know, I've always, I've always been like, Oh, we just didn't have the chemistry. And now Mm -hmm. that I've been doing a lot more work and just looking into this stuff specifically, it's hard for me to trust when I feel chemistry with someone (laughs) because I'm like, is that chemistry or is that like my dysfunction and their dysfunction meeting? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can understand that. And that's really a hard, the challenge. One of the challenges of recovery is, um, being able to trust your instincts. Right. Right. Um, so when you first you accepted that you did identify as a love addict, what was kind of the journey initially after that? What did that look like? Uh, so I did a lot of therapy with this therapist. Uh, she, is Meadows trained, which is um, the Meadows in Wickenburg, Arizona, which is PMLD's, um, I call it PMLD's facility. It's not really her facility, <laughs> but she started the program. She started the programming there. She works there. That's how she developed her model was, uh, was by working there. And so the Meadows offers these trainings that are specific to um, what what's called as, well, it's love addiction focused, but, um, you know, Codependence is the root of love addiction, and really, codependence is what we call developmental immaturity. So, it's all this um, childhood trauma that takes place around these certain 
parts of um, but the nature of a child. So, um, but the Meadows trains therapists. And so I worked with a Meadows trained therapist. Um, I also did an intensive workshop with her, which was a, um, specifically for love addiction and tons and tons of reading and studying. And um, one of the things I really think helped me was that because of where I was in my life, I immediately started talking about it. Yeah. Um, which when I started talking about love addiction, I started talking about my experience, you know, and so all that shame that I had for so long about my behavior and things I had done and, um, it was so heavy and once I was able to start talking about it and say oh my god I figured this out look <laughs> and so I think that that was really a big part of my recovery too was just talking just about talking it, about it. Mm-hmm. if you know anything about me you know I am a massive creature of comfort it is one of my top priorities in life to make my surroundings comfortable at all times so when I found cozy earth I quickly scooped up all of the luxurious bedding and loungewear that I could It felt very on brand for me, but then I went on a trip with a girlfriend not too long ago where she could not stop commenting on how cute and comfy my pajamas were, which then made me realize they may also be my new favorite travel companion as well. Guys, I am not kidding when I say you will experience unmatched softness and smoothness with all of Cozy Earth's products. The temperature-regulating bamboo joggers and pullover crew add comfort and a touch of style to any travel ensemble, and their bedding comes in the most adorable totes, making it a super easy gift to give anyone. Discover your next destination for ultimate comfort at Cozy Earth. Visit CozyEarth.com and use our code VELVETSEDGE at the checkout for an exclusive 35% off, and let them know we sent you when you're at the checkout. Bean Dad, The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, chief marketing and growth officer at AT AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, I mean, that's actually how I found you. And we'll talk a little bit more about the podcast in a bit. But the Journals of a Love Addict is the podcast that you started. And you really just started talking about your personal experience. And then you're talking to other friends of yours or people who you've met along your journey who also identify with what's going on and can tell their stories, which for me is... um, comforting I guess it's it's the same reason you know 12-step recovery works because you're sitting in a meeting with all of these people who can identify as the same with the same things and they're they're telling your story you're telling theirs and I think it makes us all feel a little less alone you know um 
but I want to talk about the difference between codependency and love addiction. Yeah. And that this is confusing to me still. And I told you a little bit before the podcast, but I've been in recovery for codependency for almost nine years. So like I, you know, I was like, I've already had my crash. I've been doing a lot of work. I've got this shit figured out yet as much as my life might feel like, you know, it feels like a lot of areas of my life have gotten so much better since I've started working through that stuff. Relationships have still been a struggle for me um, because of this dynamic. And so, you know, this was kind of a big conversation between my therapist and I about diving a little deeper into this. And I just could not wrap my mind around what the difference was or why I couldn't just work through my codependency issues and then that would fix this stuff or, you know, like just that kind of confusion. So can you Mm -hmm. talk through that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. And so that's very similar to what, how my experience was like when I first, when I learned about love addiction or finally entered recovery anyway, 44 years ago, four and a half years ago, I thought I was just codependent and drink too much. I just thought, well, that's, I'm not, I'm not a love, I'm not anything else. That's what it is. I'm just codependent, but I really didn't fully understand codependence either. Okay. Um, and so once I learned about love addiction and started studying Pia Melody's work, it all started making so much more sense. And one of the things that she says actually is those who have the most success in recovery from love addiction have already done some work or at least accepted codependence as one of their issues, I think. Or oh, really? as, as, the, as a foundational issue. Yeah. And so even though I didn't fully understand codependence the way that I do now, I had done enough reading that I at least accepted it. You know, I was accepting that this is probably what's going on, um, which is driving. I thought it was driving my alcohol use. I didn't realize that it was driving my dysfunctional behavior in romantic relationships, too. Right. Um, but so here's how I look at codependence comes first. So it's kind of like, um, I look at it at codependence as the garden and then love addiction is the weeds <laughs> that grow okay. out of the garden. And so until we tend to the actual garden, we're going to keep getting the weeds. Right. Um, so with the, the five symptoms of codependence that according to to Pia's work is that so it, we have issues wounding around certain during childhood, right? And so those that wounding or that trauma leads to uh, five symptoms of codependence. And one is uh, an issue with self-esteem. And so that's like I was talking about earlier, depending on if you were more enmeshed or if neglect was more of an issue for you, you're either you got too little self-esteem or too much self-esteem. Um, you have an issue with boundaries. You have an issue owning your own reality, which means really being in touch with who you are physically and then your thought process, uh, your feeling reality and your behavior. So all those four go into owning your reality. Mm. And then an issue with dependency, which is really an issue with taking care of yourself or being too dependent on others to take care of you. Uh, and then issues with moderation. So, you know, codependence, love addicts, we really do not behave moderately. We're either all the way in or all the way out. It's like we, we swing from one yes. to the other. We don't have a middle ground. So I'm laughing because like nothing could describe me more. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's really what issues with moderation is really, um, you know, that goes back to boundaries too. Yes. Because, you know, when we have boundaries, we can behave moderately. But if we weren't modeled boundaries um, or we have an issue with boundaries then we can't behave moderately. So um, those are the symptoms of codependence. And if you look at, okay, love addiction is rooted in codependence and codependence consists of these five symptoms. And if you look at everything on a spectrum, you know, like some people might struggle more with self-esteem than they do with boundaries or something. But to me, my experience is we have an, we have issues with all of them. There's some sort of issue. It's like I look at it as dials on a big wall of like um, some sort of computer system. And so each symptom has this dial and um, 
one can be turned all the way up and maybe one's turned down. And so we want everything in the middle. You know, like if you're looking at dials, we want everything to be in the middle. Man, that sounds like so healthy. (laughs) I'm just like thinking, I'm like, wow, the middle ground of all of that. That sounds amazing. I remember starting recovery for codependency and also being really confused because I would say that people in my life at that time would have described me as I would have described myself as a very independent person. And so like, I was like, I'm not codependent. What are you talking about? But I didn't Mm -hmm. understand. First of all, I was like, what's a boundary? (laughs) It was just not, I didn't know. (laughs) Um, And then second of all, like I didn't realize my motivating factors behind most of the things that I did constantly, which were to seek validation, approval, to people please, to take care of everyone else before me. And although I was operating from an exterior perspective as like, you know, an independent person, it was all driven based on everyone else in my life. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know, like someone would say to me, well, what do you like to do? I think my therapist said that at one point. I was like, I mean, I just work. I don't know. You know, like I just didn't mm-hmm. even, I didn't even know what I liked in general on a day-to-day basis. I couldn't tell you cause I was that out of touch with myself. Yes. Yeah. It's knowing yourself. And so that's yeah. really, that's, you know, one of the things I said to you when we uh, first talked about doing the interview, as I said, I just said, I, as long as you don't want to talk about relationships, because I'm definitely not a relationship expert, <laughs> um, because what I am, I really, I'm an advocate for the self, because I believe that we have to love and value and like and know ourselves um, before we can really be healthy in a relationship. And so that's, you know, my focus and my specialty is to help people really get to know themselves because we don't, we don't get to know our authentic selves. Um, when we have these, this childhood wounding. Yeah. Um, so getting back in touch with that and knowing yourself and knowing what you like, I mean, and your values. And there's a lot when it comes to, um, getting to know yourself, uh, you know, later in life. And it's actually, it's pretty amazing when you do the, to do that work. So if that's the foundation, you described the love addiction piece as the weeds. So mm-hmm. where does that come into play in this scenario? Okay. So with you've got the codependency, right? And so not so the way the theory works is that all love addicts are codependent, but not all codependents become love addicts. Mm-hmm. And so um, now based on my experience, and I'm just saying my experience, for myself and the people I've talked to, meaning in my private practice and just friends, um, I haven't met a lot of codependent people who haven't developed some level of love addiction okay. or had it flare up somewhere. So, um, but as far as, you know, with, with the love addiction, you know, for, okay. So as a kid, we're talking about the fantasy, right? And then you turn 14, 13, 14, 15, and you start, you learn, oh, um, relationships help soothe my codependent, you know, the, the discomfort of being myself, basically, is what we're talking about as a kid. Um, so you start looking to relationships and dating people, and that's where substance use starts, too, usually, or often, you know, around uh, junior high and high school. And so then you develop um, what happens a lot of times is uh, the love addiction goes with something else. Um, there's a lot, oftentimes there is a, an alcohol use disorder or substance use disorder attached to the love addiction or spending can happen. Food also happens around food issues. And so underneath all of it, you know, is really what we would look at as the attachment wounding, which is really um you know, I look at love addiction as it is attachment wounding and we call it love addiction because that's what, when I first started specializing in this and really talking about it, I thought, what could I call it that would be different? Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I had to put my energy into something else rather than recreating the wheel. So it's just, <laughs> um, but, you know, a lot of times um, on the outside, this attachment wounding will look like, oh, that person has a drinking, an issue with drinking or alcohol mm-hmm. or substance use when really underneath that is trauma. and Or work. That's a or, big one for me. With work? Using yeah. work? Mm-hmm. Yes. That's really, that's, that's really common too. And so 
you know, when you were talking earlier about um, that you would look like, you know, people would say, oh, you're such an independent person. You felt like an independent person, right? You oh, would, totally. I was like, yep, yeah, sure I am. <laughs> yeah. And then and how so, did I lay myself here? You know, it, yes. it was confusing for me. But I knew because of how I ended up having to face my own self was because of a bad relationship. Um, and I knew I had, by the end of that relationship, I was so utterly aware of how lost from my own self that I was. And I knew I had done everything. I was in a very co-addicted situation. But I would have done everything possible to try to make the other person happy. And the thing that I feared the most still happened. And I knew that because I had abandoned myself so much to do that, that I was sick too. Like I just, I rec- I was so able to recognize it because I was so incredibly far from myself. Yes. And that's, that awareness is so, that moment of clarity is so important, you know, because. It's brutal, um, but yeah. <laughs> oh, it's brutal. It is brutal. It's painful. It's, painful. Mm-hmm. it's very painful. And, you know, uh, that's why a lot, um, not to be uh, pessimistic about it, but a lot of us won't start recovery or stay in recovery um, because it's hard. It's yeah. really hard to look at yeah. all this stuff and it's really complex. It's not love addiction is not as simple as it sounds, which is a whole nother reason I don't like the term yeah. <laughs> because it's actually very complex. Well, it's kind of like I think about it, too, as far as like alcoholism. Well, to stay sober, you just don't drink, you right. know. And so this is because it's a process addiction, which is a new term for me. I haven't really been fully aware of that. But I, I guess that's a similar thing to like if you have a food addiction, like you still have to eat. So you mm-hmm. have to learn how to do it in a healthier way. So in this situation, it's love. And so you still want to do it because as humans, we want connection, right? But Mm -hmm. it's about the way that you do it. Is that, would you say that's mm -hmm. correct? Yeah. And it's really about making sure that, you know, I look at it as we're conditioned to live externally. Okay. You know, our focus is out there, meaning I'm going to look outside of myself in order to find something that's going to make me feel good. Right. So it's a lot of external focus. We're not really our society and culture really too. We don't, it's, we're not raised to focus on ourself, mm-hmm. you know, put our, to really get to know ourselves. And so if we're living constantly externally and we're not focusing on ourselves or valuing ourselves or taking care of us first, um, we're wobbly and yeah. we're constantly leaning out there for something. Um, so yeah, with love addiction recovery, it's really a big part of that is, really getting working on the self because we we never did that so did we finish the question about when I asked you how is Mm -hmm. it the weeds like how does that end up if if you've been working on the foundation of codependency for a while or Mm -hmm. as your therapist said maybe first um what ends up happening to make you dig to this deeper layer what ends up happening? So if you start with love addiction and then work on the codependency, is that or what you're do I mean I don't know. I mean for me in my journey, it's I've dealt with the codependency stuff mm. first, mm-hmm. and then now I'm kind of diving into this other new layer of looking at the way that I love. I also identify with what you said about either being being the avoidant or the addict. Like I've I feel like I've been both dynamics in my lifetime, and so mm-hmm. that was a really confusing piece of it for me too. Was like I don't know because I see myself shut down a lot too, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so yeah, what what happens for people that they would start to dig to this deeper layer? So. Yes. And so I just want to be clear on what your question is. So we okay. start to look at the, tra- the childhood trauma is what you're talking about. If we dig deep and we yes. go into the trauma work. Yeah. yeah. So, right. So in the intensives, like the Meadows based mm-hmm. intensives, or if you're working with a trauma therapist, you would work on attachment. trauma, And that would be working with a licensed therapist who understands um, not only attachment, but does trauma work. And so, because this is, we're talking about, trauma right um and that's another thing i think that i hear from people when we're talking about this is that well someone will say well i didn't have any childhood trauma nothing bad happened to me when i was growing up and you know on the trauma timeline if you were to do a timeline it 
there might not be any overt trauma, meaning like um, the stuff that would really stand out as, oh, those are, that's traumatic. But when you look at, you know, were you wounded around any of these, um, these five core symptoms that we just discussed about codependency, meaning like, were you, did you, what happened when you were hurt? Were you able to go to someone? Was someone consistently there for you? Were you able to express yourself um, emotionally? Did you have your emotions nurtured and taken care of? Um, and this is all in a, con- in a consistent manner, right? And so when we start to go really deep and look at that, people will say, oh, well, I did have, yeah, okay, so I didn't always get to do that, or I got yelled at if I got angry, or um you know, I started acting out when I was about eight years old because my parents were getting divorced. And so I was always in trouble at school. And so there's a lot of we look at family roles in that, too, um, the assigned family roles, which would be we just talked about the hero earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other two that we would work on are the scapegoat, which is the one who acts out a lot or gets blamed for things in the family. And then there's the lost child um, who there's more neglect involved in that where um a lot of us workaholics are and would be the lost child. And that's also um, a lot of love addicts would fall into the lost child, uh, the family role where it's don't worry about me. I got it all together over here. Y'all mm-hmm. just going about your business. I don't have any needs. I'm cool. Don't worry about me. Yeah. And um, so we learn to really be kind of anti-dependent and not ask for anything or even know what our needs are. And so, um, but this is going back to your question of we go into like there's a timeline we look at um, called a family of origin um, process where we go through lots of um, information about family of origin and experiences. And we do um, feeling reduction work. We work on carried feelings from childhood. Um, so there's a lot of deep work that's done when we really go into working on um, the developmental immaturity, which is what, is codependence and then love addiction. Do you know I hate hearing that part too? The developmental uh, immaturity. <laughs> I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. one's a really hard one for me to digest for some reason. Yeah. Well, I thought about this the other day. I thought, you know, what's funny about that term immature is that from a really young age, when we're in grade school, we're telling people, "You're so immature," and so you know, we. It's kind of a, a name. It's a it's a bad thing when really what that means is we didn't due to some things that happened in childhood, lots of us didn't develop, um, we didn't mature past a certain point. We're out here functioning in the world and we're really, lots of us are teenagers. Right. <laughs> and it's not, you know, when I'm talking about this, um, you know, I'm sure some people will, would be offended by that, but it's really just the truth. You know, we, you said it earlier, we came about this honestly. Um, and, it's not, we're not to blame. And, and also a really important part of this is to know that we're not blaming our family of origin either. This work isn't about placing blame. It's about shifting the responsibility yeah. because as, as codependents and love addicts, we take all the responsibility mm-hmm. and that gets in the way of our recovery. So it's really just shifting responsibility and looking at, you know, the reality of things and um, self-compassion is a huge part of this work, too. And, um, you know, really beyond just forgiving yourself for behavior, um, just being really self-compassionate that, you know, you didn't have all the information. So your behavior and the things that you've done, you did all that. You didn't have the information. So I like that a lot. That's like that Maya Angelou quote where she says, uh, do the best you can until you know better. And then once you know better, do better. That just always, that does, it takes a lot of maybe the shame around it because if you just, if you don't know, then how do you do better? You know? So this is all about the awakening. Um, So for anyone listening who maybe has been in some difficult dynamics in their relationships or they're bumping up against similar kinds of dynamics and relationships over and over. Could you just give like, I know you kind of talked in, into what it looked like for you with like the medicating and, but was there, what made you know that like, this wasn't the way relationships were supposed to go? Like, do you remember what you were doing specifically or some of the behaviors that just brought up all that anxiety? The behavior that would bring up the anxiety. Um, 
You know, I look back, and that's the funny thing about memory, you know, is that it can be so clouded with what yeah. you know now. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I do have 25 years of journals that I've right. written, and I look back and I can see it. I mean, I actually use the term, I, like I, I will say, I feel like I'm addicted to this person, or I feel like an, an addict, or I feel like, um, you know, I'd, I'd use those terms, but I didn't have the awareness, really, of what was going on. Um, but as far as I can tell you, one of the things that led to my recovery was that, um, I went through three years of zero dating and it was, I thought I was taking care of myself. I thought Mm -hmm. I was, um, being healthy. I thought I'll never do that stuff again. I'm going to be better. I'm a therapist now. Everything's going to be okay. And, um, then as soon as I started dating someone, um, it all came up again. And that's yeah. the thing. It's almost like as soon as you do it again, it happens even more quickly. And that relationship came and went really fast. That was three months. Then I got right into another one that was about six months. Then I got right into another one that was that lasted about three months and then ended very suddenly and that is when I had to look back on the last it, how quickly it was ramping up mm. and just say okay and and I was a therapist you know I am a therapist I, but at that time I just said I'm not being congruent in my practice if I'm not doing my work you yeah. know I really and that's so important to me you know to be someone who not only talks about things or but to be able to be doing that work um, that feels authentic to me. So that's, I'm not sure if I answered your question as far as what really led where I was able to start seeing it, you know? Well, I do think the pattern of getting in relationships quickly over and over, or even Mm -hmm. I, I identify with the not dating for three years. Actually, when I first started to work on my codependency stuff, I did the same thing. I didn't date for three years. And like you said, I thought I just was like, oh, okay, this is like my new life. This is the new me. But a lot of my stuff does not get activated until I'm in a relationship. That's right. And so right. it's um for me, it looks like, um, you know, it can start okay. And maybe that's because I'm not triggered to the whatever it is yet. But I do have a habit of picking emotionally unavailable people. They don't always look like that at the beginning. Uh In fact, they look very much like they can connect emotionally, which is really confusing. But at some point or another, something happens where it shuts down. And I don't even realize what I'm doing, but I take on... It's like this over-responsibility for making the relationship Mm -hmm. work. Like... Mm -hmm. Whatever it may be, whether it's uh, maybe we need to go talk to a therapist or I start like, I'm like, maybe I need to do more therapy and I need to, you know, and I, I do mm-hmm. so much shit. It's like, I'm like the overachiever of trying mm-hmm. to work on myself. Right. <laughs> but I think what I'm finding out is that's a very typical response to this stuff too. Um, because you just want to fix it. Right. And that's, that's what I do. And I just, I'll, uh, start to make sure that their life is, you know, I'm living in their life. I'm, Mm -hmm. they're happy. They're content. There are all these things that I think will help. And before I know it, my life is completely unmanageable. Yes. And my house is a mess or I'm not doing my best at my job or Mm -hmm. I'm not seeing my friends as much. Like it just, it starts to spiral and unmanageable is the best word that I can come up with because it's just like, it's completely out. It's just like a spiral, you know? Um, it is a spiral. Yeah. And so until it kind of explodes, I don't even usually recognize it because I've been doing it for so long. Yes. And yes. So th- well, and that's the symptom, you know, the, the mess that we make of our lives or how we neglect everything mm-hmm. is assigning too much time, attention and yes. value to the other person. The other person. Yeah. I, I always call it like, I would have this pile of stuff that needed to be addressed. Like in that pile would be financial stuff, my work, yeah. my health, whatever. There's this pile of stuff that really needs to be addressed. And it's, it's over there about 10 feet away. And then yeah. I'll take the relationship and put it right between me and that pile of stuff. And I'll, just, <laughs> I'll just focus on this while meanwhile, that pile gets bigger and bigger and, and more unmanageable, you know, yeah. but um, that all goes with that valuing yourself when you value yourself you don't let that happen right Um, 
Mm-hmm. And I don't think that, I think if you value yourself and what you're bringing to the table, accepting the breadcrumbs becomes a lot less attractive. Like, oh, yes. it just doesn't yeah. appeal as much anymore. Yeah. And, you know, I just thought of something. We're talking about the, the symptom of issues with moderation. And so, um, you know, we think about we can go through those periods of being on our own and function just fine, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. or then we swing into let's call it love addict mode and we're just completely everything's falling apart and so we want that middle ground you know that's that moderation yeah um of and but a big part of that is it's got to be you're valuing yourself um but you had said i listened to one of your episodes a recent episode of your of the podcast and you were talking about how society and culture tells us especially it starts when we're little especially little little girls that you need someone to take care of you yes and and that is so ingrained in us. And so that's something we have to kind of rework that in our, in our, in the work that we're doing. Um, and that's our conditioning. It's just kind of like we have to learn how to, um, that it's okay not, you don't need someone else to take care of you. You need to take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. And then the relationship is like the icing on the cake. You know, you're the cake <laughs> and there's some icing. Yeah. Um, I think that is a lot harder from women from what I, oh, yes. the conversations that I have at least. It seems like men have a better grasp on, well, I need to take care of myself first and then these things. And I don't know if that's just programming, if it's oh, our biological yeah. time clock, maybe a combination of all of it. Yeah, I definitely, I agree. That's And that's what I, when we're little girls, we are definitely taught, mm-hmm. it starts so early. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes. Yeah. Well, the podcast is called journals of a love addict. Um, it's on Spotify, iTunes, Apple podcasts, basically anywhere you you can listen to podcasts, right? Yes. You can just search journals of a love addict. Um, we were talking before the podcast about a workshop you have coming up. I know we've kind of dabbled into maybe the basics of love addiction and mm-hmm. what that can look like. So I'm sure there's a lot of people who, might have more questions. And so can you kind of talk through this workshop? This might be a good place for people to go if they do identify a little bit or they're starting to maybe want to dabble into looking into this stuff. Yeah, it's um, it's a six-week online workshop that I lead. I'm actually wrapping one up um, next week and I'll start, I'll open registration for the next one, October 26th, and we'll okay. get started in early November. But it's six weeks uh, and we go through what love addiction is, what love avoidance is. Uh, we go through all five symptoms of codependence um, and start really looking at what recovery would look like um, and help people get a foundation so that they can then go out in the world and, um, you know, de- decide what, what the next step for their recovery would look like. Cause, because everyone's recovery looks different, right? right. Everyone's in a different place. Um, some people have already done a lot of work. Some people are just embarking on the work. Some people are just learning about love addiction. And so um, everyone has a very unique experience with recovery. So, and I know we said at the beginning of the podcast, we don't want this to seem doomsday at all. But after your four years of recovery work, I mean, have you found any kind of serenity or hope or just what are your experiences that you could share with people to know that this is something that you can work through? Yes. Uh, so the answer is yes. Serenity and hope. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, it's, it's sometimes, it's sometimes I look back and I think, did that really happen? Was that really me? And it, and it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where the self, I, and I don't even really go into shame anymore because I've done so much work around that. It's not that the shame isn't there. I just choose not to go through that doorway. That's marked shame. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yes, I, I am, currently in um, a healthy relationship with someone who is available. And I I will be honest that it's challenging for me because there are times I really want to rock the boat. Really? I I crave that intensity still. And I've accepted that that's part of, that's probably going to be there. And, um, but when I crave that intensity, I'm able to say, what is it I'm feeling right Mm now? Um, And if there's an emotion, there's always an emotion. Some we're, we're driven by emotions, right? Um, so what is that emotion? And it's typically I need to connect because, because I'm in this stable relationship, healthy relationship, I tend to be more avoidant 
And so when I want to rock the boat and stir up some trouble, it means I need to connect and so move towards the middle again. And every time I do it, I feel so much better. Wow. But that is, you know, I, I believe recovery is ongoing. I don't think we ever get to this point where we say, ta-da, I'm all recovered. Well, all I thought now. I was fixed and then I got a whole new one. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> How is this what I'm dealing with nine years later? <laughs> yeah, and, and if we can look at it as how awesome is that, that we are constantly That's what, Oh, you are such a therapist. That's what my <laughs> therapist says. She's like, well, you couldn't have gotten here if you hadn't done all the work that you have done mm-hmm. because it's, it's a true. deeper layer. I know, but I'm like, I don't want another thing. <laughs> That's that immaturity maybe. <laughs> well, no, it's also, it's just we of course we don't. We want to think I'm done. I don't have to look at any more that. It's not. Easy I want to graduate. To yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And see. Oh, yes. And there's that. That too. Like we want the finish. The finish line. So. Well, that's how our society works, right? It's you do all this work and then you get this like certificate at the end of it. So <laughs> yeah. I'm like, where's the recovery certificate? Because yeah, right. But I guess the certificate would be the serenity, the hope, all of those things that you're saying you found, the fact that you are in a loving, healthy, emotionally available relationship. It doesn't mean you're not going to deal with the same things, but you have tools now. Right. And I think, honestly, to answer your question about serenity, and I think my favorite part of where I am in my life is waking up in the morning and feeling good about myself. Yeah. You know? Wow. I think that's, I think. I wouldn't trade that for anything. Yeah, I love that. Well, Jody, where else can people find you if they have questions about love addiction or just want to learn more? My Instagram, which is uh, at Jody White LPC as okay. a licensed professional counselor. And then my website is JodyWhiteLPC.com. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you being so open about all of this stuff and the work that you're doing. I follow your Instagram. It's been extremely helpful to me on a daily, like just the quotes and stuff that you do helps me not feel so alone. So if anyone is out there and you're dealing with any of this stuff, Jody is a great resource. Reach out to her and I really appreciate you being here. Thanks, Kelly. I loved talking to you. Thank you guys for listening. Bean Dad, The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.